This podcast is supported by an educational grant by Bosch Health, made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. In fact, we identified that there is a lot of clustering across the globe in patients with systemic sclerosis and other autoimmune conditions. And despite the overall genetic stability in the last 50 years in humans, there was a quite important spike in the incidence and prevalence of autoimmune conditions. And this seems to be despite improved recognition. That's Dr. Alina Netjaporik, an assistant professor of dermatology at the McGill University Health Center and the director of undergraduate studies for dermatology at McGill. She's our guest today on this episode of JCMS Author Interviews. I'm your host, Kirk Barber, the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery and a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Calgary. Today, we're happy to have Dr. Netjaporik guide us through the article that she and her co-authors put together looking at the understanding of environmental risk factors in systemic sclerosis. The article appeared in our March-April 2021 issue and uh, just to remind you it will be outside the paywall and available to all listeners for three weeks from the time that this podcast is put online. Welcome, Elena. Thank you very much for joining me for this conversation today. Thank you very much for the invite. It's an honor to to be here online with you. It should be fun. And, uh, you know, we're going to look at your uh, review article that that was in our March-April 2021 issue. And um, the article was Toward Understanding of Environmental Risk Factors in Systemic Sclerosis. Now, you know, sounds like a very dry subject. Um, but when I actually, <laughs> but when I actually sat down and went through the article in uh, detail, um, some really fascinating things come up uh, in, in this in this discussion. So tell me what what took you and your co-authors to even start to investigate this. I'm actually this is a. I would say hobby and passion of mine. So as you know, I do uh, uh, quite a bit of research at the MUHC. So now I'm doing 50% of research and 50% of clinical practice. And I guess it just kind of happened that I start having so many consults for skin fibrosis patients, systemic sclerosis and localized scleroderma morphia patients that I even had to open a specialized clinic Um, And this clinic is right now run every second or every fourth week called Skin Fibrosis Clinic. So I get to see so many of these patients. And there are a couple of particular, very interesting things that I've noted from my patient population. So very interestingly, a bunch of them are coming from the same geographic area. So that kind of brought an interesting question for me is that is there are there environmental factors that seem to be important? So we start digging the literature uh, with Lydia, who is a medical student who just was accepted to McGill uh, Dermatology. So we start looking of whether we can find something to uh, strengthen this hypothesis that we generated. And uh, in fact, we identified that there is a lot of clustering across the globe in patients with systemic sclerosis and other autoimmune conditions. And uh, the other very interesting factors is that despite the overall genetic stability in the last 50 years in humans, there was a quite important spike in the incidence and prevalence of autoimmune conditions. And this seems to be despite improved recognition. So the question came as what are the environmental factors uh, that could potentially be driving this condition? And we wanted to really, uh, for our own learning, um, 
generate this review paper to learn to really see uh, what are the important factors in systemic sclerosis in particular. And then we're looking for other autoimmune conditions as well. And of course, um, I do think, agree with you that uh, this kind of bold subject turned out to be more interesting when we read the paper. At least for me, I think it's a passion and, um, and, uh, and a project that I'm very excited about. Well, I was fascinated by the fact that it appears you're taking up on research that was started as early as 1914. Um, and you talk about the stonemasons that were exposed to silica that uh, all develop systemic uh, sclerosis. Well, we would know that uh, today. And um, that was interesting. And I did some occupational dermatology in my in my uh, training days and, and you know, in, in practice, actually. And so um, I understand the importance of a job and how a job reflects on the skin and now how the job reflects on the systemic sclerosis. So, so what you're doing is taking the work that this, uh, these individuals did in the early 1900s and reevaluating, relooking at it, and and I and I saw Libby Montana, yeah, one of your from mining. So, mm -hmm. really, um, what did you find out? So, sorry to prep you, but what did you find out when you when you started to look? Are there still occupations, or is it just exposures? So, I think there are both. Basically, from from what we see, and some of this information is um, is not even written in, in this uh, review paper. It's something that we found out later, and uh, in our own analysis. But basically, what we see is that they probably seem to be occupational and job related risk factors that seem to happen more in patients who are actually exposed to this job and occupation. So in systemic sclerosis, it seems to be particularly true for uh, male sex or our men uh, patients, because they're more likely to have occupations that involve um, handwork and construction. As you can see with silica exposure in the, in the job list that we provide from the CanGem database. So many of them are, are working with bricks, with stones, with mining industries. So this is a, a job that is more traditionally occupied by men. Um, so, of course, uh, men are a rare subset of patients with systemic sclerosis, a disease that is predominantly female. But this man uh, that seems to have systemic sclerosis, they do seem to represent an important occupational disease population. And they not only um, are likely to have an exposure to occupation uh, with silica or either with organic solvents, but they are likely to have a more severe disease manifested with diffuse cutaneous scleroderma uh, that is involving proximal to uh, distal uh, phalanges and also with more important interstitial lung disease, cardiovascular involvement, and higher risk of cancer. So this is interesting, but basically something else that when we start looking is how many um, occupational scleroderma are there? And there seems to be relatively few. So occupational exposure to silica, just by example, probably accounts for about 5 to 7% of systemic sclerosis patients only. So there is still over 90, 95% of patients, in which case we don't really know what is driving this disease. But what is very interesting is that um, exposures to silica and to other um, contaminants and pollutants can happen in the air. So, by example, there is some recent data from uh, United States that show that next to silica mining operation or silica transformation industry, there is high-density pollution in the air with silica within 10 kilometers of the facility. And from our knowledge, there is no safe level of silica exposure. 
So what you've discovered is that men mm-hmm. may be the canary in the coal mine. What you're saying, they get the highest exposure. They're the most mm-hmm. likely to be there. But really, the the incidence of the systemic sclerosis is more, co- more common in females, we know. That might be the more diffuse and widespread exposure that people uh, get. So the men become the, you know, we you, you find the occupation, you've, you've found the systemic exposure, you change mining practices so that that silica is not as uh, um, aerosolized, if you will, and uh, maybe we can make a difference. Well, this is what I hope to demonstrate. So, of course, I think the, um, the environmental exposure to silica is something that it's more in the hypothesis and it hasn't been proven yet. But it's certainly something that it's worth exploring because many of this condition, these autoimmune diseases, we don't have a cure for them. We don't have also good treatment besides immunosuppressing the patients. And even that may work, may not work. So if we can elaborate on preventive strategies um, and uh, that, I think, can make a big, big change uh, for our patient population. Of course, systemic sclerosis remains a relatively rare disease, but it's a disease that makes people suffer terribly. So it's very important um, to try to to uh, elaborate preventive strategies. In your work, has there been any um, thing that the clinician can kind of look at? And are, are there people that are are more susceptible to systemic sclerosis? Are there are there risk factors that should be a red flag to us that uh, say, boy, you sure shouldn't be a miner or uh, stay away from uh, Woodstock, Canada, where they, <laughs> you know these clusters? Is there anything like that that you that uh, people are working on or that you've discovered? I think it's it's quite hard to say, but uh, I think one of the kind of early precursors potentially of systemic sclerosis um, may be Raynaud's disease with a later onset after age of 25 and uh, whether there was a capillary abnormality on, on capillaroscopy. So now we are all equipped with excellent dermatoscopes. So when patients with Raynaud, we can easily examine their capillaroscopy. And in fact, if we indeed identify capillaroscopy changes that are suggestive of systemic sclerosis pattern with dilated loops and skipped lesions, uh, that seems to be the most important prognostic factor for later transforming into systemic sclerosis. Um, wow. So, so finally, uh, a second reason for a dermatoscope. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, so um, well, this one uh, is unexpected. And I know we look, but maybe we should be looking more at nail plates and, and, and yeah. nail folds. <laughs> I think I'm biased. I'm, I'm looking every time. And if, if I, God forbid, my dermatoscope is not charged or I forget it at home, I feel debilitated. Yes, yes, nowadays for sure. But I wonder about the, the nail plate look. Um, I, I know I don't look at the nail plates of everybody under the dermatoscope. Maybe, is there been any other phenotype, phenotype in the females that develop systemic sclerosis? Well, it seems to be the same thing. Um, so from uh, my knowledge and my personal research on the topic, um, the Reynolds phenomenon after age of 25, um, when it's triggered mainly by cold stimuli as opposed to cold and stress, and in presence of capillaroscopy abnormalities, uh, it is a good idea to do the antibody panel. And if in addition to capillaroscopy abnormalities, there is an antibody panel that we can encounter in systemic sclerosis, such as anticentromere antibodies or antitopoisomerase antibodies, um, I would certainly be concerned that the patient may progress. And I'll probably do a full workup 
And if the full workup is negative, I'll just keep following the patient to see if the patient may progress eventually. And I think we don't have many answers. Um, I don't think all of them necessarily progress. Um, but uh, based on the literature, that seems to be the stronger predictor for eventual progression. Would you bring their family in? I never did. It's a good question. Um, the genetic, uh, the genetic of systemic sclerosis, surprisingly, they are very scarce. Um, there is, of course, a couple of published uh, cases where there is clustering in the family, but then clustering in the family can be genetics, can be also be the environment, uh, the living environment, the occupations, the exposures, hobbies, etc. Um, but uh, in the studies from the monozygotic twins, uh, there is very poor correlation. So even though we do for systemic sclerosis, similar to other autoimmune disease, say that it's environmentally triggered and genetically predisposed, um, despite the advance with the Human Genome Project, there is not such a thing as a clear genetic predisposition to systemic sclerosis. So I think that's another like excellent, um, excellent point for future investigation. So another project for you. <laughs> yeah, the family right. history. The family history and, and uh, the dermatoscope. Yes. You bring people in <laughs> and look for the capillary changes on family members. Yeah, that's and, a really good, interesting. It'd be interesting. simple, right? Yeah. It'd be simple. Maybe do the antibody profile and who knows? Mm -hmm. Okay. We get credit here first. <laughs> so out of your work, uh, is there anything else that you wanted to highlight from the paper? So I think from the paper, what we can what we can grasp is uh, systemic sclerosis is certainly complex. There's too many still unanswered questions, but I do think the topic of environmental exposures, because those are potentially something that we can grasp on and potentially work on improving, they're important for future exploration. Um, and uh, basically, one of one of the work that we are doing right now, we're collaborating with the Canadian Scleroderma Research Group. Uh, so Dr. Mary Barron, Mary Hudson um, from uh, the uh, Canadian Scleroderma Research Group to analyze their data. Um, so this is still in the works and uh, hopefully we'll finalize soon. But we had two separate projects that we were looking at. So the first project we were analyzing the occupational exposures. And surprisingly, it's actually 40% of patients in the registry uh, reported exposure to either silica or organic solvents. And, uh, of course, there could be some selection and recall bias in these cases, but um, I was actually surprised that the number was was as high because we don't uh, tend to always ask the question to our patients when they see them in the clinic. And, and just to, to stop for a second, just to remind people, this Canadian Scleroderma Research Group is big. This is a big database. They've been looking at this for years in a very comprehensive way in questionnaires and following people with with various function tests. Um, so this is a very robust database. So this number may be of significance. Yeah, so I mean, this is still preliminary results and we're still analyzing the data in more detail, but um, it's certainly something that uh, when, we, when we do ask the question to the patient, we may be surprised by the answer. And then I think something else that I really learned from this review is that, of course, exposure to silica that seems to be um, really kind of job specific to construction worker, but occupational exposure to organic solvents, which does have to seem to have a strong link with systemic sclerosis based on observational case control and cohort studies and meta-analysis of this. And this can be encountered in people where we don't expect a job uh, association. Example, scientists who are working in laboratories, at university laboratories, by example, engineers, 
occupational exposure in context of dry cleaning, of uh, shoes production. So things that we kind of don't expect. And painters, because all of these uh, compounds are volatilized and are important to dissolve uh, products. So they are, they are, I would not say omnipresent, but they are there more than we think they are. Have you approached uh, the Workers' Compensation Board for any funding to do this research? I think that would be fascinating. I haven't. That's a good idea because yeah. finding funding for epidemiological work, yeah. um, it's a challenge. I think they'd be very interested. Mm. I think it might make a difference to their world over time, right? I mean, the goal in the Workers' Compensation Board isn't just to compensate workers that are injured. Their job is to try and predict the injury and prevent it. And, and, and facilitate changes w within industry. So I think it's another arm that, uh, that no, maybe, maybe um, it would be worth a phone call, I would think. <laughs> yes, thank you for, okay. for uh, pitching an excellent idea. <laughs> well, um, okay, so um, we've got silicate, we've got acrylates, uh, acrylates and various other uh, uh, exposures that are volatile. What about the gut? You, yes. you talk about the gut here, and I know the microbiome is like a, yeah. like a giant, you can say anything you want about it. Is, is there anything that came out that struck you as being, maybe this is real? Well, I think it's real. The question is, what is the chicken? What is the egg? So, of course, we do tend to see um, this biosis in the gut microbiome in patients with severe systemic sclerosis, especially those who have severe gut involvement or GI tract involvement. But uh, the question is whether this dysbiosis changes happened before and led to disease worsening and disease transformation or whether they are seen because of this dysmotility, which is part of systemic sclerosis itself. So I think this is the unanswered question in systemic sclerosis and in many other diseases where microbiome is being studied. And um, I think this is important to study further. And uh, the same feature is seen in the very limited studies on skin microbiome and systemic sclerosis, where we do tend to also see a dysbiosis with less uh, lipophilic bacteria. But again, uh, what happens first, because we also know that with more severe systemic sclerosis, there is replacement of healthy adnexa and healthy skin architecture by fibrosis. So there is uh, hence a reduction in the number and uh, function of the sweat glands. So I think uh, perhaps it could be a consequence rather than the cause, but we do not know what is the cause and what is the consequence. If I have a patient with systemic sclerosis, I should be getting in touch with the rheumatologist, I suspect, um, because they would run this research group or have access to it, right? Yeah, so, uh, so there are several centers across the country, uh, but it's not every province that participate. And uh, the recruitment rates are not as active um, depending on the geographic location. But I think all the rheumatologists involved in the Canadian Scleroderma Research Group are highly specialized and excellent in really what they're doing. And uh, for me in particular, all of my patients with systemic sclerosis, uh, they're always co-followed with the rheumatologist and very often with other specialists because they're so complex with so many multi-systemic involvement um, that I think this multidisciplinary uh, work is really essential to provide a good care for, for these patients. So I could encourage my rheumatologist to enter this patient into their database, right? Yes. Or do it myself. Or, <laughs> or, or do it myself if the rheumatologist isn't interested. Well, I think they are very interested, but um, yes, 
So they've been recruiting since 2004. It's really, yeah, like you've said, a, a well-established registry with um, multi, uh, multidisciplinary and uh, many uh, physicians' efforts. And uh, that already read, led to more than 200 publications. Um, so this is the excellent registry that we have in Canada. Well, another great thing that Canadians do that remains relatively um, unheard of in, in, in the dermatology world. So hopefully we'll bring people um, to look for that and to start to look at those uh, publications because I'm sure they're Canadian specific um, they are. in their data, right? I mean, as far as location and geography as well, is that where we came up with Woodstock? Was it Woodstock that uh, um, has the highest so incidence? Yeah, so, so, well, we don't know about the incidents, so it was kind of a cluster. So it was a study where they compared uh, different regions and they compared patients with systemic sclerosis per region uh, compared to other rheumatologic conditions. So it then identifies that um, there seems to be a higher prevalence or higher number of patients with systemic sclerosis living in Woodstock. So interestingly, using the Canadian Scleroderma Research Group, we tried to map the patients across the country, and we still see this kind of area of, of Woodstock where, where there isn't a good amount of patients, but we also identified a couple of other spots. So another kind of unofficial clusters in Canada is Kanawaki, which is a, a native reserve uh, in near Montreal area. And they even have their own support group for systemic sclerosis called the Kanawaki Patient Support Group, where in a small community of 7,000, they actually have about about 20 patients, I don't remember the exact number, but it was a significant number considering a rare disease. So there is something, and it's really, I think, worth studying. And uh, clearly, we don't have all the answers right now, but um, it is very, very exciting to explore that and to see basically exploring the epidemiology of systemic sclerosis further in such a versatile and economically diverse country as Canada uh, can pinpoint us toward an environmental factor that we can potentially address. All right, well, thank you very much for sharing this uh, with us. And if we can help on your research, setting up these registries or, or, or whatever, please reach out to the journal and we'll, we'll, we'll get something organized. I will be reaching out. <laughs> so thank you again for, for sharing it with us. It's been a great conversation and uh, I learned something and hopefully uh, our listeners did too. Well, thank you very much for the invite and you gave me uh, excellent advice and excellent idea to pursue. So uh, hopefully with your help, I'll be able to secure extra grants for research. That was Dr. Elena Netraporik, an assistant professor of dermatology at McGill University Health Center and the director of undergraduate studies for dermatology at McGill. Dr. Netraporik is also an associate editor here at JCMS. And as you can see from our discussion, she's an active dermatological researcher with all kinds of ideas. I'm glad that she was able to share them with us. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes and share this with your colleagues and on social media. I'm Kirk Barber. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, be good to each other.